and welcome to the Cinema in Seconds podcast. This is the podcast where we look at small moments in great movies. My name is Ian. And I'm Daniel. And this week we're looking at romantic movies. Sort oh, of. Yeah. Dan's going to stretch the definition like he usually does. Hey, I specifically said to you we were doing love stories, which okay. that was much wider. Love stories. That's what we're doing. Love stories. Anything. The Terminator's a love story. <laughs> and it's the best kind one was shooting yep (laughs) and robots yeah i think uh we're a week late on this we probably should have done this last week possibly (laughs) because by the time people will listen to this valentine's day will be like almost a week over but this is true but i would argue you know what as 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 people without girlfriends love to say you don't need a holiday to tell the person you love that you love them Um, you know, Valentine's Day may be over, but love is eternal. We can still talk about, and who better than continues than the two of us? You know, we're pretty romantic guys, I think. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> we got it happening. Did you have like a? Did you do anything special for Valentine's Day? Um, no. <laughs> yeah, we uh, yeah, we didn't do anything. I mean, we went to a movie this weekend. Nice, kind of nice. So, my partner and I pre-ordered each other video games. Oh, there so, you go. Perfect. I got her the new Pokemon and she got me Elden Ring, which comes out in like two weeks. So, yes, you know, that's sick. romance. It's <laughs> <laughs> playing video games. So you don't have to talk to each other. Um, yeah. Yeah. So this is this perfect. is the caliber of uh, of uh, romantics that are going to be discussing the great love stories in celluloid. Yep. So be ready. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't you get us started with you actually one of the most romantic <clears throat> movies ever made yeah uh yeah it's up there for sure so i'm going to talk about before sunrise from 1995 so it's the richard linklater movie starring ethan hawk and julie delby and the moment i'm going to talk about is basically almost at the beginning of the movie it's where they actually first meet which i think is pretty fitting for the first movie that we're talking about today it's the meet cute and so the the whole story takes place over like one day not even a day in vienna where these two people meet and come to know each other that's basically the movie if anyone hasn't seen it before and they so they meet on a train so ethan hawk is playing an american jesse and then he's julie delby is playing celeste who's who's french but she's you know traveling home i guess on their way through austria and so he's just kind of hanging out on the train traveling and reading a book and then she's further up on the train but the people that she's sitting beside are arguing too much she gets annoyed so she goes back and that's when he notices her and then of course he's kind of keeps glancing over at her glancing over at her and then she starts doing the same thing and i think it's just it's just a really great example of that initial attraction between people and then and you can you can get that sense that he's just dying for some sort of an icebreaker and you know to to have an excuse to talk to her and then he gets it because the the arguing couple kind of walks by and he uses that as as his end right so he's like do you know what they're arguing about and and so after that you know they they kind of keep striking up a conversation and they meet and i think it's just a great example of that fear of 
letting the opportunity pass you by, right? And so, you know, these are two strangers, but you can tell he wants to talk to her. She wants to talk to him. And the, the, it could have easily just gone off as, well, he gets off on the next stop and that's it. There's, there's nothing after that. But of course, that's not what happens. They do meet each other. And it ends up being, I don't want to give too much away, but there are two sequels to this movie. So, <laughs> but it ends up being like a life-changing moment for both of them. And it's, it's a kind of a neat idea that you never know when those life-changing moments are going to happen right so i think it's a great moment i personally connect with it because when i was like early 20s i did a whole summer backpacking in europe and so i could really relate to this idea of you know meeting new people whether it was a romantic situation or or not or just meeting new friends um it's it's kind of a, a neat thing when you're on a trip like that because the relationships, again, sometimes romantic, sometimes not, but they seem accelerated in a way because you know you only have like a few days to hang out with this person. And so it's like you just, and you both understand that. And so things just kind of kick into gear and and uh, you spend lots of time together. You talk and get to know each other in a much shorter period of time than you would normally. And so it kind of, it always brings me back to, to that mindset when I was young. Um, well, that reminds me too of that line at the end where uh, as it becomes morning and uh, uh, Celine needs to board her train out of Vienna and uh, Jesse has this line where he says something along the lines of like, we're back in real time because now that yeah. it's morning and like, you know, this is idea that you're existing in this like almost pocket of time that's outside of time. Absolutely. And, and now you're back in um, both magical and kind of sad when it comes to a close. Yeah. And it does feel like that. It feels like a day feels longer than a day. And when you're in this situation, it's really cool. And so I connect to this moment personally, and I just, I just think it's a really great example of just two people meeting that end up having a connection and you're kind of, because I think we can all relate to that situation of, well, should I talk to this person? Should I not? And how many times do we just not? And that's fine. And then most of the time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and I mean, that's okay. But then eventually you do take that leap and you know, sometimes it will pay off and sometimes it won't. But, yeah. mm -hmm. Well, and I like too how, like you point out, you know, she only moves because of the couple that's fighting. It's like, if they're not fighting so loud, she doesn't move. Right. They probably don't say anything to each other. They might not even notice each other in that version. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it is kind of crazy. Uh, this scene also is fun because it kind of takes a even more loaded weight in light of the two sequels where at the end of the third movie, the last scene at one point is them in a public space amidst other couples and they're the old couple in a fight. Yeah. So <laughs> it, it's point. now this weird full circle thing, um, which in some ways you could view in a very cynical way like this the romance of the early films just like being whittled away but i personally see it as being a much more romantic vision that like that they do become that that means they do endure on some level and that they're still trying to make things yeah. work and whether or not they will 
who knows we might never know because this might truly be the last well, one if it um, if we do know it should be this year right if we yeah it's true pattern. I haven't heard anything about it coming out this year. So I don't Julie know. Delpy has said that no, it hasn't. But then people have pointed out like she did interviews like either the same summer or right before that summer where they like filmed uh, before midnight. And they're like, yeah, no, there's no third one. <laughs> so who knows, who knows? Uh, if anybody could have pulled it off. And in the midst of a pandemic, it's Richard Linklater, Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't know. I mean, I do think if, if, if the three is all we get, that's perfect. Uh, we don't need any more. And partly cause like the, <laughs> the idea that the fourth movie might open with them, like having split up. I don't know if I, my heart can handle that. <laughs> just like yeah. crying in the opening 30 seconds of a movie. Just like, no. Yeah. I, that would be tough. There. That would be tough. Even watching yeah. the third one was tough at parts, but yeah, you do love these characters. Like you, you really do grow with them and it's, mm-hmm. It's a really, really great series of movies for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this moment, I think, starts it off so beautifully. And like, uh, even just the, the the idea of it is so like appealing and attractive and romantic of like, you just start talking to somebody and it just sparks something that, you know, keeps growing and keeps um, uh, having that appeal and richness to it. That, that's such a seductive idea. Um, and there, I like the... It's kind of neat too because there, there's that small little moment before they even talk to each other where just kind of glance, he glances at her, then she glances at him and back and forth. And it mirrors another more prominent scene a little bit later in the movie, the one in the in the music shop. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of like that this is like the precursor and then kind of goes full bore with it a little bit later. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's another thing that kind of gets in a weird way inverted in the third movie where in the, the first one, it's like, they keep looking sort of past each other, or like not fully meeting. And then in the third movie, you know, first of all, the, the time for those sort of flirtatious looks is long gone, but also it's more that they're talking and sort of misspeaking to each other. Like they're, cause their fight is kind of rooted in like, it's not necessarily, uh, you know, that heated in on the surface of it. It's just that they're both, coming at it from slightly different perspectives and not being totally fair or cognizant of the other person's feelings and those simple early things just keep because they keep just missing each other just build and build in kind of the opposite way that these missed looks build and build to something really romantic this does the opposite (laughs) um but it it, it's a wonderful moment and uh it does capture the sort of youthful spirit of of that first film in particular yeah yeah Um, pretty awesome is the first film of the of the trilogy your favorite yeah and i think it is because of this that romantic idea and it's kind of interesting because i'm like i'm a movie behind the movies like in my life like i'm because mm. when this one came out i was still you know in school i was a kid but when the second one came out i was at the age of the first one and then when the third one came out i was the age of the second one and so I kind of am looking back on it, um, which is when I'm looking back on it, it's kind of interesting. So, well, it's also it... interesting that Linklater is slightly older than the characters. So, like, he's slightly ahead. Yeah, he's looking at it from mm-hmm. from behind, right? So, yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, I think I I have a real connection, mostly because of this train scene, and you know, I think back to when I was in Europe and. Yeah. And I like the idea that 
like you said, they could have very easily, the circumstances were different, completely passed each other by. And, you know, and when I think like the night that I met my wife, how many things were, when I look back, how many obstacles there were that I actually overcame, which is kind of, it's kind of weird because like I was supposed to meet, go to this, this party for my friend, but I had to work. And so I had to like convince, you know, a coworker who to, um, to cover for me, basically to work late for me so I can go. And he did. And he's still a good friend of mine. So thanks, Matt. <laughs> and, uh, nice. and, um, yeah, if you're listening. Yeah. And I know he does. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. Perfect. And then I even, and I, when I was on the way, like it was, a, uh, they basically had like a, it was a, basically a pub crawl. So they had rented this bus. And so he and my buddy, Justin, who was on the show, he invited a bunch of people to this party and other people he knew. And so she was there and I was, I even rear ended a taxi <laughs> on my way. So, <laughs> so that almost stopped me because I was like, cause I was just in such a panic and luckily there was no damage. He just yelled at me for a while and drove off. So I'm like, okay. So then I kept going and, <laughs> and meanwhile, I'm being late and Justin's holding the bus for me. And ironically, my, my now wife is like, who are we waiting for? Just leave them. Just go. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Oh, we that's so funny. We've been together ever since. So you never know. Oh, no. That's really sweet. That's a, that's a beautiful place to segue into our next film. Uh, <laughs> you know, cause when people say romance, what comes to mind, if not David Cronenberg's the fly. Um, now I'm being a bit glib potentially, but I actually do think there's some truth to this in that. Um, I really do think the love story between Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis is essential to the fly um, and, and is thematically essential, but also emotionally. So the moment I'm choosing is really simple. It's near the beginning of the film where uh, Seth, Jeff Goldblum has showed off his teleporter machine to Veronica, Gina Davis, who's this reporter, and she's now going to write up a story about it. And he's in a panic because he doesn't want this information out yet. It's not ready. He wants to develop it further. So he shows up at her office to basically pitch her instead. Well, why don't you chronicle my work over the next weeks, months, however long it takes and write a book about it. The, a book about, you know, the invention that changed uh, transportation as we know it. And the way he at first pitches it is he's in his office. He's in her office and they're talking together. And he says, I've come here to say one magical word to you. She's like, which is. And sadly, we're on, you know, audio, so you can't see what I'm doing with my hands. But he just kind of leans forward and goes, cheeseburger. And she laughs, and we cut to the, you know, crappy cheeseburger place, and they're eating their fast food while he pitches her, you know, work with me. And I love this moment, one, because I genuinely think it's just like a cute, nice, meet cute moment, and Goldblum's delivery is like perfect. Um, but also, I think it's really essential in getting us to like these two as a couple, because really, like, the fly runs a pretty tight 90 minutes and it has to tell this love story between two characters who meet at the very start of the film it needs to establish the teleporter concept it needs to get the DNA mix up in and the science of that. It needs to show Seth's degradation into this fly monster and it needs to have this, you know, horrific climax. And it still finds time to have this surreal nightmare scene where Gina Davis gives birth to a giant worm a lot going on in this movie. And, you know, the fact that in all of this, these kind of little meet cute moments are really essential in getting us on board with this couple because they don't have that much time to spell out this love story. 
but just from this moment, just cheeseburger and her laughing, you're like, I like these two. I hope they make it. And as they develop that relationship further, you really do get connected to them and really buy into them. And it makes the second half of the movie where Seth gets sick and it's in a lot of ways a metaphor for disease and that the time was often seen as a metaphor for AIDS, which is time appropriate. I think the allegory kind of falls apart because of the, there isn't really an like a equivalent to the systemic failure of like Reagan government, for example, in the fly. So it's not a perfect analogy, but you can see how like anyone who had stood by a loved one as you know, they knew they were going to die, like why that would be such a powerful uh, sort of relationship and, and powerful portrayal for uh, those people. Um, it makes it a much more heartfelt and and uh, and horrific story that it's not just this grotesque monster movie and it's not even just the the fear of like having to confront your own mortality. It's also the fear of loving someone confronting that thing. And the other thing, and I think it's actually essential because, you know, The Fly, it's kind of stunning to think that it was like a critically acclaimed movie when it came out. And even Cronenberg gave interviews where he said, yeah, it's being more well-received than horror movies usually are. And certainly Cronenberg's other movies were not that well-received before or after, really. Like, he's, he's a well-respected filmmaker, but a lot of the contemporary reviews of his films are kind of like, what are we supposed to do with this? <laughs> um, but The Fly was, like, revered. You know, you had Gene Siskel prominently saying Jeff Goldblum should be nominated for the Oscar. Um, and you consider that like four years earlier, John Carpenter's The Thing was just eviscerated by critics. Yeah. And it's a very similar film aesthetically. Um, that I think the reason why people latched onto this one, in spite of a lot of the gross elements that would have turned those same audiences off, was that love story. That it is fundamentally a story about two people who really love each other and having to deal with that end tragically. And it does end tragically. And it's also as a lot of the films I talk about recently, incredibly gross. There is a vomit scene. It's amazing, <laughs> as they always are. Um, but it does have this like core heart that makes it um, so much more resonant. And honestly, to the point that like, you know, you go to the movie, you knowing it's a monster film, but the banter between those two is so cute. The party was like, I kind of hope that they stay cute romance because this is nice. Oh no, he's, he's vomiting on his donuts because he doesn't have teeth. Or he does have teeth, but he can't dissolve. He can't digest solids. Sorry. But, uh, but yeah, that's my romantic moment. Okay. Okay. You've convinced me. I'll let you keep it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I do think, I do think you make a really good point about why, you know, why people latched onto it that normally wouldn't like, yeah. If you can buy into the characters, you can basically go along with anything that the filmmaker is going to put them through for the most part. Mm -hmm. And so it is really important. And that's one thing that I love about movies is that in the time frame that they have, they're able to do so much and including completely make buy into this relationship. And like you said, there's so much that has to go on in 90 minutes, but I'm just always impressed that movies are able to do that to make you actually go through the whole gamut and then in under two hours it's mm -hmm. like so when I get people say tv versus movies i'm always on the side of movies because yes it just I, I don't know tv you can watch an episode of tv that's you know let's say a double length hour-long episode which lots of shows do and that's not doing the same thing as a two-hour movie at all it's just 
it's amazing. I don't know. Well, I was going to say, I hate it when people <clears throat> when say about X movie, I really feel like it should have been a TV show because then you really could have got into the characters. It's like the movie's good. If the script works, the actors are good. The direction is good. You don't need an eight hour miniseries or an eight season arc to develop characters that are compelling and interesting. You can do it in 90 minutes. Absolutely. And Cronenberg, Gina Davis, and Jeff Goldblum do it beautifully. Yeah. Yeah. And I think without those two actors, I don't know, like, again, I think that they, they help you buy into them a lot too. Right. Mm-hmm. Like nobody can deliver the cheeseburger line. Like Jeff Goldblum. Can no, it, it, it's, it's, it's very Goldblum-esque. Yeah. And it's Goldblum-esque too. In a time before Goldblum became like a meme. Mm-hmm. Like it kind of annoys me that we're in this era where it's like, Jeff, like, kind of like how Nick Cage is often discussed, where it's like, no, Jeff Goldblum is a great actor. Yeah. And he, in the, in, you know, when he's in the right role with the right director, like, it's fantastic. And this is, I think, is his best performance. He's exceptional in this. Although he's honestly rewatching Jurassic Park, I'm like, he's really good in this. It's not just that he's cool and suave, like, he's yeah. excellent. And uh, he really makes the most out of a character that does not have that much to do. Yeah. Um, you know, so. So yeah, it does bother me when people act like like there's the there was the world according to Goldblum show on Disney Plus, and there's like these sort of meme millennial books about him. It's like no, he's he's the real deal. Yeah, although I can't think of many like roles where he is carrying the movie, other than this one. Like mm. for the most part, he's he's usually one of the main cast, but not the yeah the person. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm just trying to think what else, like I, he obviously shows up in all the West and not all, a lot of the Wes Anderson movies lately um, where he's delightful, but yeah, he's one small part of like a vast ensemble. Yeah, yeah I don't know. I, I'm sure there are other movies where he's sort of carrying them, but I haven't actually seen that many of them. So, yeah. um, I mean, I guess the Lost World Jurassic Park where they took everything interesting about his character and threw it away so That's he could true. be a dad. <laughs> I forgot about the sequel. <laughs> I mean, he's like, that's the thing though. Like he's the least interesting thing about the sequel, despite being arguably the most interesting human in the first movie. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to say the most interesting thing because the, the dinosaurs are the most like, <laughs> that's the amazing. Star, Dan. The they, they are. are the, star. the T-Rex is a hundred percent the star. That's why he gets the hero moment and it's yeah. great. Um, yeah. The second movie just, that's the biggest disappointment is Goldblum's character just becoming like, I have to save my daughter. It's like, you were so cool and interesting and fun. And now you're just a dad. That sucks. And I think, do you think Gina Davis needs to come back too? Yeah, she's awesome. Yeah. Um, she had an amazing run there in the 80s and 90s. Uh, won an Oscar shortly after this for uh, The Accidental Tourist, a movie that I did not care for. Hmm. But, you know, she did win an Oscar. So she was doing something right, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I think you've convinced me. I think it's it works. Awesome. So this va- next Valentine's <clears throat> Day, you know what to do. You know what to rent. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if there will be a Valentine's Day after that. If I make her well, watch the you know, fly. Oh my goodness. Then if you need to break up with somebody and you don't want to, <laughs> you're not sure how to do it. There you go. And if that doesn't work, put on come and see afterwards. Oh dear. <laughs> um, yeah. Do you want to jump into your next pick? Sure. All right, so uh, you went 80s grotesque horror. I'm going 2000s uh, family animated movie. Why not? So I'm going to talk about Wally. 
And specifically, I'm going to talk about the the scene where Wally and Eve are dancing in space. Because doesn't that sound wonderful? So, of course, Wally came out in 2008. Um, and this is the the scene where Wally gets shot out of an airlock. So they've already boarded the human ship and Eve goes after him and he's found a fire extinguisher in the ship. And so he's kind of using it to propel himself through space. And then they kind of just dance around and they go through the ship's thrusters. And, um, and I just think it's an awesome scene and it really, it, it's a good highlight of why I love the movie so much. You've got Thomas Newman's scores is like, hits the tone for what's happening perfectly. I think it's just a perfect score for that moment. Um, I also like that it momentarily kind of brings back the silent movie trope that the movie starts so famously starts with. And this is, this is a, a small little piece of romance between two robots. And it brings back that trope again, because they do cut to some humans here and there throughout it that will talk, but for the most part, it's a silent, another silent, uh, part of the movie that you don't you don't need words to know what's happening it's just it's just happening and it's it's lovely and if you want to go a little bit deeper with the moment too it's almost like a little synecdoche of their relationship because you've got eve is like this high-tech robot and she's got her own power boosters and she can propel herself quite easily and then wally's just this bucket of bolts and he needs a fire extinguisher but then they still they manage to meet the same ends basically and they they're flawless they just dance flawlessly even though they are both doing so in much different ways which i think is says something nice about this relationship between these two robots as well yeah i would agree and actually i think this is something that i'd only just thought of when you mentioned that you know comparison of her being really high tech and wally much more low tech is um you could potentially read this scene as almost like a disability allegory where one person in the relationship has some sort of physical disability that they can't, you know, do physical things the same way that their partner does, but they make it work anyway. Hmm, um, that's interesting. I have no idea if this holds up. I only thought of it as you were talking, but I think it's, it's kind of, that is a really nice yeah. idea. And like this notion that like, you know, just because Wally's not as advanced doesn't mean he can't, he can dance too. Mm-hmm. And isn't that, beautiful yeah i love the sequence and the whole like the whole love story is the secret weapon of wally because as much as like you know especially like really film people would like to wax philosophical about the fact that like the first 45 minutes there's basically no dialogue outside of sound effects and like the amazing depiction of the earth visually in the state of pollution and decay and the sort of themes of humanity regaining their purpose and drive after being cut adrift and also the themes of like anti-corporate culture coming from the Mm. most evil of all corporations mr walt disney um that love story really seals the deal like i remember the last time i rewatched it that was the kind of the element where i realized like i've taken this for granted for a long time but it's so like you really buy into it and feel those emotions i remember watching it uh is that like my uh my girlfriend's parents house um couple years ago and they're like prepping dinner or something and Wally was just on TV mm-hmm. and they're talking casually about what they're making and it's like I think it was the scene like in the sort of trash garbage area where Wally's like at risk of dying and I'm just like <laughs> back tears <laughs> as they're like so should we do chicken or Dan do you like that yeah yeah, yeah that's fine 
come on wally <laughs> like being so concerned with you know that those people those people those robots though and that that affection and that story it really does kind of it works and yeah, it does. there's a lot to be said about when you know when movies work on that really just primal emotional level um yeah and the movie doesn't bother with things like you know how sentient are these robots and could they really feel it doesn't matter right but it's, no. they're just two cute characters that that fell in love and you're just with them and you just want them to be okay mm-hmm. and i i love it. i this is i think this is pixar's best i don't i I'm agree pretty sure you stand yeah i thought you, yeah. you were kind of 100 there yeah and, and I, it's not particularly close. <laughs> no. I'm no. trying to I think mean, what my number two would be. There's a lot that I love, but... Yeah. I think this, Toy Story 2, Ratatouille, and uh, probably The Incredibles, some variation of that, with Wally at the top, though. Wally's definitely my favorite. And just the character of Wally. Like, he's just so cute. <laughs> well, and something you've talked about, too, that I think is actually really profound is the fact that, like, you know, because people have argued that the movie becomes more of a simplistic kind of chase movie once they get on the ship. And it kind of does, but I like the point you've brought up elsewhere where Wally kind of changes everywhere he goes. Like he brings this influence that slowly but surely dominoes into eventually overtaking the entire ship um, just by simple things, um, throwing characters off the routine, making them see things in a different way. And that being the spark that you know, ignites something bigger, um, which really you could argue starts with Eve because she it comes to Earth with this very specific programming and then by the end cares more about Wally, this, you know, obsolete little trash bot than yeah. she does anything else. Yeah, That's like nice. her her horror when she thinks that Wally got blown up, like when just at the beginning of the scene is it's heartfelt like you you really feel for her and then of course he comes charging through on his fire extinguisher and everything's okay and <laughs> but even in that scene there's a there's that little part where the two humans you know because they're watching wally outside the window they end up meeting each other and so you get another love story inside of this one because mm-hmm. well it's because of that effect that wally is having on everybody he's taking them out of their there's even a meta textual element going on there. This idea of like watching other people fall in love through a screen can help helps us, That's which it does. Yeah. You know, interesting. How many of us? How many of us make sense of our own romances and our own? Certainly, when we're young too, like we understand love through art, through movies and books. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely part of that for sure. Did I lose you? very briefly okay we're all good <laughs> good i might not even edit this out <laughs> um yeah no it, it's and the other thing i love about it this too is like it's one of those moments where it's like that pure cinema of just it's very simple the scene but it's so what it's such a perfect marriage of like the score the beautiful visuals of mm-hmm. the dance and sigourney weaver's narration as the computer defining dancing yeah and you just kind of watch and just like these pixar guys really know what they're doing yeah like this is such beautiful filmmaking um 
you know, it reminded me of watching Soul recently, and there's a, a sort of montage near the end that, like, the idea at the core of it is not that deep or rel- uh, revelatory, but the way it's put together, you, you really feel the scope and, and weight of it and the precision of the filmmakers. And, you know, it, it's nice to just sit back and take in really great filmmaking. Yeah, it really is. And that score, it's, it's very unique to that movie. Like, it, it feels... It feels like its own thing and it just works so well. Like I love the music in this movie mm-hmm. and that I scene too. Was particularly. Although this is the one area where like, it might not be the best Pixar score because Michael Gaiacchino's work for Incredibles is pretty lit, but <laughs> it's close. It's close. Yeah. Um, yeah so that's my pick. Good old yeah, it's, Wally. it's a good one. Uh, it's funny that of all the, so many animated movies revolve around love stories that you went with the one with robots. It's the one I thought of right away. <laughs> Don't know what to tell I you. I respect it. I love robots. <laughs> um, as discussed, like the Terminator, the best kind of love story, one with robots. That's Although in right. that one, the robot is not involved in the romance. Oh, can you imagine? That'd be a great movie, though. <laughs> you know, he came back in time to kill Sarah Connor, but the only thing that was killed was, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know where that tagline is going to go. I was going to say the only thing that killed was his heart. It's like, that doesn't actually make any sense. So we'll have to workshop <laughs> that. But I do like this idea of like a robot assassin that's back in time, but falls in love instead. I think you just made a lot of people angry with that idea. By pitching a Terminator love story? Yeah, you might. I mean, at that, that point, that franchise is such a mess. Like, that's I can't true. do anything Why worse not? than they've already done. Why not? Like they've had like six different John Connors at this point. Come on, let me have this. Well. So, All right. Um, but yeah, it's it's a great pick. Love Wally. Excellent. All right. Well, what have you got to close out the the day? Yeah, I got another movie with horrible violence in it. <laughs> um, less disgusting though. Uh, Fargo, the Coen Brothers' wonderful crime saga of less intelligent people trying to pull off smart crime schemes and just collapsing over themselves to darkly hilarious results. Um, But the moment I'm choosing is really incidental to all that. And it revolves around the marriage between uh, Francis McDormand's Marge, who's the, you know, pregnant police officer who's on the trail of the bad guys and her husband, Norm played by the wonderful John Carroll Lynch, and there's there's a couple of scenes between them that are just so perfect and how simple and small they are. I really could have chosen any of the scenes between them. The fact that we first meet them, it's like three in the morning, maybe a little bit later, and she gets a call and they found these dead bodies and she needs to come take a look. And even though it's like, you know, he's asleep, he wakes up and he's, you know, I'll make you some eggs. Like, oh, you don't have to get up yet. It's like, you need breakfast. You got to eat in the morning. I'll fix you some eggs. Like just... And the shot of them eating together and then she goes out and he starts kind of eating the food that she left and then she has to call him back out because her car needs to jump like really just wonderful simple quiet moments. Um, But what I really love is the ending where, um, you know, the crime story wraps up in really grisly fashion with everyone basically killing each other and uh, Steve Buscemi getting fed to a wood chipper, which is amazing. Uh, And then you've got William H. Macy being arrested after his un, not well thought out fleeing to a motel and like this really like rewatching the scene, like very upsetting scene of him just like crying in anguish as he's like awkwardly 
thrown on this bed and slapped in handcuffs. And then we go to Marge coming into bed with her husband and it's quiet. It's nighttime. And there's this humble little room, this humble little bed. And he talks about, they announced the postage stamps, which art was going to be on and that his painting made the three cent stamp. And she's like so happy for him. And he says, nobody uses the three stamp, the three cent stamp. And she's, oh, sure they do. When they got to, when they, when the prices go up and they got to make change to what they have, lots of people use that. And he says, yeah, I guess. And they have this nice moment. And one, I, I just love the fact that this, you know, absurd crime story of all this like backlash and betrayal and accidental killings for no reason ends with this really nice, I think just like, that's just neat on the simplest mm-hmm. level. But I also think like that's maybe the one of the best depictions of like what long-term love actually looks like where, cause most movies for good reason, will focus on like the big gestures and the big turning points. But a lot of a relationship, a lot of any romance is just like being together in those quiet moments. And especially just reassuring the other person that the stuff they do is worthwhile and good. And it's yeah. like, Oh, the three cent stamp is nothing. Like, no, that means a lot. And you should be proud of yourself. And it's not overemphasized. It's not overly dramatic. It's exactly the right level of like the encouragement that it needs to be. And it's so sweet and good natured um, in a way that feels really authentic to the way people are with each other. Yeah. And the way that like most people's achievements, you know, I, I think most people have things that they can be really proud of in their lives, but most of your achievements day to day are not grand achievements. They're small things. And those small things are just as worthwhile. Yeah, this is a great pick. I absolutely agree with you. This is, it caps off the movie so well because on the other hand, like with all the criminals, you've got, it it almost kind of does the same thing on their end, right? Where it's not overarching evil people. It's people who are just making really bad decisions and being really, you know, being selfish. And you can absolutely see anybody doing that right that you can see them being real like william h macy could be a real person absolutely and then marge and norm are counterbalancing that they're saying okay well this is if that's what you know real evil looks like you know it's not it's not somebody taking over the world it's you know just bad decision making and um just not having your priorities in the right place and then on the other hand you see hey these people do have their priorities straight. You know, they know what's important. And yeah, it's not grand gestures. It's just, they just love each other. And you, there's so many great moments. The other one is, I like when he comes and brings her lunch and they just mm-hmm. eat lunch together in the cop shop. Like, it's so good. Yeah, such a good moment. Yeah, they're eating hardies, I think. <laughs> yeah. um, and, uh, and she's got them the the worms i think for going fishing which is also just like well they're going to the they're driving in and she mentions that that shop and the other cops says like you don't think he's involved it's like no no i just want to pick up norm some you know like yeah. like really just simple domestic you know nice things you do for each other that are not the big sweeping um it's also funny too because there's the scene earlier where uh pierce Dormer and steve buscemi's character pick up these women and like there's this wide shot sex scene of the two of them lying down on the bed and the girls on top naked and it's like all exciting and whatever and then it fades to black and it fades back up and they're all still in the room just like lying next to each other yeah. in complete silence watching tv which is hilarious but it's also like 
it's a good example of like that earlier moment being like, oh, it's more exciting and passionate and vibrant, but then it's like immediately gone. Whereas this is like, nothing really happens, but it's so tender and warm and sweet, uh, which is a fun, fun little juxtaposition there in terms of, um, and it also, it seems appropriate too, that like a lot of the scheme in the film, the William H. Macy scheme involves him allowing his own wife to be kidnapped to ransom her off. Mm -hmm. The fact that you are paralleling this couple that's like, there's no warmth at all even though it's not like when we see their married life he's not they're not hostile to each other they don't necessarily seem overtly you know in the same way that in the way that a lot of movies will portray a couple yeah. in turmoil or even the fargo tv series that opens with like the martin freeman character being like and his wife in like such a nasty uh relationship which i think the pilot episode ends with him killing her so there you go um but with this relationship it's not that they're like they hate each other or anything it's just they don't have that warmth and tenderness that you know uh that marge and norm do yeah and i think the movie would end off on a much different tone without that scene for sure yeah so i think i mean you think about important in tying the movie together yeah and i think you could argue the coen brothers have this trilogy of like you know, ill, like ill-fated crime schemes involving greed and uh, stolen money with Blood Simple, Fargo, and No Country for Old Men. And the two films on the end of that are obscenely bleak. Mm-hmm. You know, Blood Simple ends in just complete misery, really. I mean, you know, Francis McDormand survives and the bad guy gets killed, but it's a dark, dark movie. And then No Country for Old Men is like, the idea of evil cannot even be comprehended. There is no country for old men anymore. Um, you know, Fargo stands out in the middle of this as being like, in spite of how dark and violent it is, one, it's much funnier than those either of those movies. Mm-hmm. Those movies have their moments of humor, but Fargo is like gut-bustingly hilarious. Yeah. As an aside, the scene where Shep whoops ass in the motel is maybe the funniest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> Steve Shemmy's with a lady and Shep pulls her off like Shep I'm banging this girl and he's just starts swearing at him and beating him down it's so funny um but it's it's a very funny film and it's also it has a level of warmth and uh affection that is not found in uh in the other films the Coens have done with this sort of theme yeah yeah that's very true and so and I think that's a big part of why this one tends to be uh, more well received i would say than than most others um mm-hmm. for a good reason i think like not yeah. like the other like no country for old men is a is a fantastic movie in its own right but yeah there is there is something special about fargo and i think it is exactly that do you think yeah. it's their best film i do yeah, yeah nice. i do think it's their best film what about you i'm not sure because <laughs> <laughs> for the longest time i thought the big Lebowski just because it's like one of the best comedies to me but I'm like oh, no country for old men is really good and I'm like oh Fargo though it's like this perfect balance of everything they do and now I'm like is it actually inside Lewin Davis I really like inside Lewin Davis I think about there's two scenes from that movie I think about all the time one is uh Oscar Isaac performing for F Murray Abraham and and it's just cutting to F Murray Abraham being like I don't see a lot of money in this and it's just like so crushing. And the the scene later on where Oscar Isaac's Lewin Davis is just saying like, I'm so tired. I thought I just needed a good night's sleep, but it's more than that. I think about those two scenes, probably too much, probably an unhealthy amount because they're not scenes you want to be thinking about all the time. 
But, well, so I don't well, know. You can always go back to margin norm if you want to feel good. I could, yeah. Or to Shep whooping Stevie Shemmy's ass. <laughs> also heartwarming. <laughs> yeah, and Marge, yeah, I it's... think, is just one of the great characters. Like, she's yeah. such a good character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's not a surprise that, uh, you know, Frances won her first Oscar for this movie. Not, not to say she's not brilliant in it, because she absolutely is, but it's also like, it's such a specific and singular character and one that also could have felt so insincere and fake like yeah. the you know the thick accent and the pregnant she's the fact that she's pregnant like and like very pregnant she's like seven months or something and she's mm-hmm. investigating this you know murder case like it could have been awful um but you know somehow it all fits together yeah yeah that's a great moment i love it yeah yeah, that's and I think that's a great, of... yeah, great one to end it off, right? Yeah, I, I think so. Couples meeting and couples many years after. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maintaining still, and it's a good ending where it's like we we didn't end with like a more, you know, the Michael Haneke film. It's like <laughs> couples, <laughs> which is also a very romantic movie in a way, but in a very bitter way. You know, couples lasting and like it's not necessarily the, you know eruption of passion but it is really nice it is very comforting um and you know maybe that's what true love is there we go who who are we to say we just like (laughs) movies yeah (laughs) all right yeah no i think i think we covered it well so happy late valentine's day everybody Mm -hmm. and yeah so what are your favorite uh love stories i guess we won't say romantic movies but because it could be love stories could be found anywhere Mm-hmm. It really could and yeah let us know so tweet at us at cinema underscore seconds and yeah tell us what you think dan do you got anything to plug uh nothing new at the moment but i have begun writing the next video essay so nice. uh that'll be coming eventually i don't know when but i don't know hopefully soon sweet so. yeah i actually have something to plug Oh, yeah. So um, there's a the podcast. There's a podcast called the Legendarium Green Team, which is like a spinoff podcast of the Legendarium, which is like science fiction and fantasy books like their book podcast. But they decided to do an episode on the their favorite science fiction and fantasy movies of 2021. So they asked me to join in. So that just came out this week. So Legendarium Green Team. It was a lot of fun. We nice i got to gush about dune some more and it was great so (laughs) that sounds awesome so check it out i can't wait to listen to that and yeah so thanks everyone for listening i'm ian and i'm daniel and if you have a crush on us let us know on twitter absolutely yeah (laughs) with little check boxes yes yes maybe (laughs) yeah millhouse waiting in the back like (laughs) all right we'll catch you next time